Okay. Now, we're, we're in Joshua. So I know some of you thought that we were finishing Joshua last week. Sorry to disappoint you. That's why some of you came back this morning. You thought finally something new. But actually, we are finishing Joshua today. Uh, we sort of looked at the last couple of chapters last Sunday, but we're looking at the final chapter of Joshua this morning, chapter 24, and we've been working through this book of the Old Testament for quite a few months now since Easter. Interestingly, Joshua, in the, in the Jewish, in the Hebrew Bible itself, Joshua is listed among the prophets. Isn't that interesting? It's actually one of the prophetic books, first of the major prophets, it's called. Uh, it tells you something about the nature of the book, that Joshua is written not from a human-centered perspective, but from God's perspective, God's view, God's prophetic view of history. It's this theocentric view of where things are going and what God is doing in the world. So from one angle, Joshua kind of has this prophetic tinge to it, uh, but it is, we think of it as primarily a book of history, this book that tells the story of Israel coming from their wandering in the Sinai wilderness through to conquering Canaan and being a settled, united uh, group of people, a nation living in the land of Canaan and just outside. Now, last week, we looked, we started looking at Joshua's final speech. Chapter 23 and 24 of Joshua narrate his final speech to the Israelites. And we talked last Sunday, if you remember, we talked about how Joshua is so impassioned to tell the story, to cast Israel's minds back to the story of what God has done for them, the story of their own heritage and their own past, not just to give them a good bedtime story, but to shape them because this story, this worldview story, it has power. It's a story that was contested in the ancient world. There were many stories, many gods, each with their own narrative. And Joshua says, this is the story, the story of God that needs to shape your lives, that you need to soak it up so deeply, so richly that it saturates you and that it starts to come out in the way that you lived. And we talked about ways of keeping the story alive, keeping the story fresh in our homes, in our lives, in our families. I want to pick up the story this morning just at the end of that section of Joshua's speech. In chapter 24, Joshua has told the story. He's gone back to Abraham. He's told the story right through to the present day. He's caught them up to speed. He's cast their minds back. And then in verse 14, verse 14 of Joshua 24, Joshua says, Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, a little bit of sarcasm here, do you think, with Joshua? You know, in other words, if serving the Lord, if it's just a bit too much trouble to serve the God who has rescued you from Egypt, taken you through a desert and just led you in this massive military victory, if that's just a little bit too much for you, then... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua puts this choice in front of Israel and he says, you need to choose. You need to make a decision. Are you going to run off after all these other gods, these other stories, these other worldviews, or are you going to choose and keep choosing to serve this God and to keep living this story? And from one perspective, the whole book of Joshua has hinged on personal choices. In a sense, it's all led to this, this, 
this commitment to choose, this commitment to make a decision, it's all been personal choices. You remember right back in, in Joshua 1, Joshua himself had to make a choice. He had to decide if he was going to listen to God commissioning him to lead the Israelites across the Jordan and into Canaan. God commands, but Joshua had to choose that. And then you remember Rahab, the, the prostitute who lived in Jericho? She made this choice not to side with her own people, not to side with the Jericho people against Israel, but to defect and to go and stand with Israel and with God against her own people. And you remember that the priests of Israel had to make a choice when they went down to the Jordan River and God said, dip your toes in the water and not until you've done that will I part the seas. They had to choose whether they were going to exercise that kind of faith or whether they were going to stand on the shore and wait for it all to happen before they ventured out. And Israel had to choose. You remember we talked about Jericho. Israel had to choose whether they were going to follow God's unconventional battle plan for taking Jericho, this bizarre ritual of walking around the city for seven days blowing trumpets. When everything within them must have said that was the most stupid way of ever taking a city. They had to choose. And then Achan, remember Achan, he made a choice to steal some of the spoils of Jericho, some of the treasures of the city, and that choice had disastrous consequences for him and his family. For the whole nation of Israel, they went into battle, they lost. People lost their lives, not because of anything they'd done, but because of his choice, his decision. Its consequences spread through the whole community. And then Israel made this foolish choice to enter into a treaty with Gibeon. You remember that message when they made this treaty thinking the Gibeonites lived in another country, but the Gibeonites were neighbors and they never inquired of the Lord. They made a choice not to ask God, just to charge in in a foolish way. And they ended up with a group of Canaanites living right under their noses they could never drive out. And then Joshua made a choice to ask God to stop the sun in the sky. He made a choice to exercise that kind of faith so that they could win this, this battle, this huge long battle against the southern kings and the southern confederacy. And then Caleb made a choice to go and fight those giants that 40 years ago he'd seen in the land, even 85 years old. He comes back to Joshua and says, I've got the strength, I've got the faith, I've got a sword in one hand and my walking stick in the other hand and I'm going to go and take those giants. He makes a choice. And then we talked a couple of weeks ago about the eastern and the western tribes on the brink of civil war making a choice as to how they would deal with each other moving towards reconciliation, grace and truth, not division and not disunity. All the way along, it's been choices, choices, choices. And now Joshua says, you've got to choose because you're about to go back to your homes and you're about to go back to your villages and all these miraculous things that you've seen over the last seven years, you're not going to see that kind of thing. You're not going to see God working in the same sorts of ways when you go and settle down and start your own economy and start your own farms and become self-sufficient. And you're going to go back to families that haven't seen what you've seen and, and, and families that haven't experienced what you've experienced. They don't have the buzz that you've got. They don't have the energy. They don't have the war stories. It's going to be easy for you just to start to drift and start to fizz. And you're going to go back to your homes and because you haven't driven out all the Canaanites, there's going to be people living down the road from you that are worshipping other gods, gods that you can see, gods that you can touch, not gods like the untouchable Yahweh, but little shrines that you can get your hands around and they have a certain allure to them because they're right there. All of that is going to be laid on for you and so you have to make a choice, Israel, Joshua says. You have to make a choice. 
You've got to choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. You might have chosen in the past. We're seven years ago, we all made a big choice, but that's that. This is now. You've got to make a choice. And look at how Israel responds to this. In verse 16, Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who have lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? You would have had to have been pretty happy if you heard that. Joshua must have been encouraged by this. It sounds sincere. It sounds genuine. It sounds like everybody's saying, we're with you. We are choosing the Lord. We're going to stay faithful. We're going to stay the course. We're going to hold the line. Right? If you said this to me after this sermon, I'd feel pretty good about myself. This is commitment. This is, we are going to, we're going to act out on what we said. But look at what Joshua says next. You'd sort of expect him to be very, very encouraged by this. And yet, look in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. This sort of comes out of nowhere a little bit in the text. You sort of expect Joshua to say, thank you very much for your commitment, let's pray and close the service and we'll go home. But, but, but he doesn't. It's like he's just suddenly trying to talk them out of the very thing he's just been trying to talk them into. He said, now you've got to serve God, you've got to serve God, you've got to serve God. What's that? You want to serve God? Well, you can't. You're not, you can't do it. He's too holy, he's too jealous. It's sort of like he wouldn't get a job in sales, would he? You know, what a great product. You've got to buy this. No, I don't think you can handle it. This is, this is beyond you. You're not up to it. You know? it's, it just sort of seems bizarre, like split personality. What's going on here? What he's doing is he's, he, he's pushing it back, isn't he? Pushing it back on them. He's poking his stick back at their commitment and saying, just think about what you're saying. Just stop for a minute and consider the words coming out of your mouths. You need to think about the weightiness of this decision. You need to think about what it is you are really saying here. Because there is a gravity to this commitment. It's not just singing a song. It's not just praying a prayer. I mean, this was an easy time for the Israelites to have a great gusto, great lofty commitment to God. They were in the middle of this covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, all together reminiscing on the past. There was a wonderful sense of the presence of the Spirit of God. That's the easy time to be committed. That's the easy time to say, here we are, and yes, we're going to go for God, and and, and we're all in. But Joshua says, hang on a minute. You need to think about that just before you go charging in, because God is a holy God. God is a jealous God. And if you say these words, and yet you just drift along, and you do not fulfill what you're saying today, don't think that God is just going to turn a blind eye to you and let you stay in this land. He will turf you out, and he will overrun you with your own enemies. So it's a bit like us. It's easy in this context, isn't it? To sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we make the big commitment because we're here and this is a spiritual meeting and we're we're gathering together with like-minded people and it's a wonderful thing to worship God. But I wonder if sometimes we need to hear those same words. Imagine if somebody who was wanting to become a Christian heard that said to them before they made a decision. 
Imagine that. They were talking to someone about a desire to follow Jesus and the person they're talking to said, I don't think you're ready. I hear what you're saying, but I don't think you're ready. You need to think about what it is you are committing to. Because we stand and we sing. You remember that song we sung just a couple of minutes ago? Jesus, I believe in you and I would go to the ends of the earth for you. And we all stand, Jesus, I believe in you, I would go ends of the... I just sort of wonder if Jesus was standing here and he said to us, really? You would go to the ends of the earth for me. Really? Do you have any concept of what that means? Have you thought that through? Or we just sing it because, well, the words came up on screen. I just assume I'm supposed to open my mouth and sing. We need a little bit of this kind of shock treatment from time to time just to make ourselves think about what it is we're actually singing. Because it's so easy to say the words and it's so easy to pray the prayers and it's so easy to have the rah-rah-rah, but there can so often be a total disconnect between what we say we believe, what we profess, what we claim and affirm in times like this and how we actually live our lives and who we actually are and what we're actually about between Sunday lunchtime and the following Sunday morning. Brennan Manning says this. It's a quote that was made famous by the band DC Talk. He says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What he's describing is a concept called practical atheism. A practical atheist is a person who is a Christian by by any technical definition, by any formal definition, they're a Christian. You you might be in this category. You've, You've prayed a prayer. You've made a commitment. You believe in God. You believe that Jesus has died for your sins. You've asked him into your heart. You've asked him to forgive you. You, you, you believe the scriptures, you come maybe to church sometimes, you might even read the Bible a little bit, but in terms of how you live your life and who you are day to day, for all practical purposes, you live as though God didn't exist. If Father, Son and Spirit simply ceased to exist tomorrow, it wouldn't really make much of a difference to your life because they're not really involved. God's just absent from your everyday life. He's not, he's not integrally involved in, in who you are at home. He's not involved in your decision-making. He's not involved in your thought processes, not really involved in who you are as an employer or an employee. But you're a Christian. You believe the stuff. You're committed to it in, in, in your head, but somehow it's just not translating into who you are. And it's not that you're living some great immoral lifestyle. It's not that you're going out there and committing heinous atrocities and sins. You might be a very moral, upstanding person, but it's just that your life is marked by an absence of God's power and an absence of God's influence and an absence of a living and vital and dynamic relationship with him. Practical atheism. It's a split world. It's Christians that come to church on Sunday and we sing the songs and we pray the prayers, but we go home and we live practically as if God didn't exist. And if someone was to look at your life and make a decision or make a conclusion as to what you believe based not on what you said not on what you affirmed in songs, but how you actually lived, they would conclude not that you're a follower of Jesus, but that you are functionally and practically an atheist. It's hard to hear, isn't it? But the reason I think this has become 
legitimate and, and so prolific is because we've, we've reduced Christianity down to just a set of ideas, something that we can affirm, something that we can just decide and commit, and it's this intellectual thing, and it's, just, it, it, it's a set of beliefs. And yet it can have so little bearing on how we live. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he tells a story. It's a bit like Chicken Run. He's, he calls it the parable of the geese. Let me read it to you. A certain flock of geese lived together in a barnyard with high walls around it. Because the corn was good and the barnyard was secure, these geese would never take a risk. One day a philosopher goose came among them. He was a very good philosopher, and every week they listened quietly and attentively to his learned discourses. My fellow travellers on the way of life, he would say, can you seriously imagine this barnyard with great high walls around it is all there is to existence? I tell you, there is a greater world, another and a greater world outside, a world of which we are only dimly aware. Our forefathers knew of this outside world, for they did not stretch their wings, for did they not stretch their wings and fly across the trackless wastes of desert and ocean, of green valley and wooded hill? But alas, here we remain in this barnyard, our wings folded and tucked into our sides, as we are content to puddle in the mud, never lifting our eyes to the heavens, which should be our home. The geese thought this was fine lecturing. How poetical, they thought. How profoundly existential. What a flawless summary of the mystery of existence. Often the philosopher spoke of the advantages of flight, calling the geese to be what they were. After all, they had wings, he pointed out. What were these for but to fly with? Often he reflected on the beauty and the wonder of life outside the barnyard and the freedom of the skies. And every week the geese were uplifted, inspired and moved by the philosopher's message. They hung on his every word. They devoted hours, weeks, months to a thoroughgoing analysis and critical evaluation of his doctrines. They produced learned treaties on the ethical and spiritual implications of flight. All this they did. But one thing they never did, they did not fly, for the corn was good and the barnyard was secure. It's such a penetrating analysis, isn't it, of our society. Even though Kierkegaard, I'm sure, didn't intend for it to be, it's a penetrating analysis of modern Christian culture as well. Uh, we, we, we live in this nice secure barnyard where the, the, the things are secure and the corn is good. You know, we, Most of the time we have enough to meet our needs uh, at least relatively speaking, and we live fairly comfortable, fairly secure middle-class middle lives, try and get our relationships in order, try and get our health sorted out, try and get our finances established, and we have little niggles along the way, but for the most part, life's fairly secure, and it's fairly stable. And we come along every Sunday, and we, and we talk, and we think, and we dream about another life. And we hear about the fact that we were born to fly, we were born for more than this, and there's this life out there, that God has called us to live a life where we live in dynamic communion and connection with the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we walk with Him and we're led by His Spirit and we're drawn up into His story and we participate in the outworking of that story in a million ways in our own worlds and in community with one another. And we talk about this and we maybe analyze this and we, we think about it and we, and we talk together about it. But the one thing that we don't do is we don't fly. Because at the end of the day, the barnyard is secure and the corn is good. And Joshua knew this was going to be as much of a temptation for Israel as it is for us today. 
And so he stands back and he says, you've got to choose. We've got to choose, friends. No more drifting, no more waffling around, no more cruising, no more coasting, no more plateauing, no more stalling out spiritually and just cruising along. We've got to choose. We've got to decide. Are we just going to keep on living as practical atheists for whom God is virtually absent from our everyday life and we just meet together to rev each other up and go home again? Or are we going to choose? Choose to fly. Are we going to choose to be Christians in the fullest sense of that word? Jesus wasn't that interested in whether you'd made a decision seven years ago. He wasn't that interested in whether you'd prayed a particular prayer, sung a particular song or what have you. He said, come and follow me. He's interested in the present. Come and follow me. Are you following Jesus? This is where it starts, friends, is by choosing to reconnect with Jesus, choosing to reconnect with God. Some of you have been drifting for so long that you've forgotten what it's even like to know God in a personal way, to really be connected with him. And and, and you've almost convinced yourself that if you just sing a, a song, sing a worship song, pray a few prayers, maybe you read the Bible, maybe you come to church, but when you think about it, that real connection between you and God That personal connection between you and Jesus, it's just not there. This is where it starts, friends, is choosing to come back to our Heavenly Father, to come back to Him, to say, this is the day I'm going to choose to reconnect with God. It's not saying, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to behave myself, I'm going to try harder, try harder, try harder. If you start there, you are sunk. But it starts by saying, I'm going to come back to God. I'm going to come back to Jesus. I'm going to know Him again. When's the last time you talked to Him? Really, because you can go through a whole church service without doing it. Guarantee you. You can sing six worship songs without actually talking to God. When was the last time you even talked with him, communed with him, just sat with him and listened to him and spent time with him? Some of you have just been going on empty for so, so long. And today's the day to say, I'm not going to put up with that life anymore. I actually don't have to be stuck there. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like yesterday. I can choose because a choice implies you've got the power to do it. It's not too hard. It's not beyond you. It's not a bridge too far. It's a choice. It begins by you saying, I'm coming back to Jesus. I'm going to reconnect with him. And it's out of that choice that a life of obedience flows. It's out of a living, dynamic, day by day, hour by hour, relationship with the risen Jesus Christ. That's the well from which everything else bubbles up. If you don't have that, you're never going to get any further with anything else. It's out of that personal connection with Jesus that a life of holiness starts to emerge, that a life of following Jesus starts to emerge. That's how it progresses. That's how it comes. And it's never, ever, ever coerced. God never says... Listen to the words of Joshua. He doesn't say you have to choose... He doesn't say you you must. He says, you choose for yourselves. All Joshua says at the end of the day is, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, but you choose. It's on you. No one else can choose for you, friends. I can't take responsibility for your spiritual life. The elders can't. The Shaw Kids ministry can't. You have to take personal responsibility for your own relationship with God. And it's never forced on you. Jesus never held a knife to anyone's throat and forced them to choose allegiance to him. He said, if anyone would come after me, whoever wants to come after me, he always left it open. But he says, if anyone would come after me, then if you want to choose it, 
then let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's the choice. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to come here every week and pretend. You don't have to just wear a mask. If it's not for you, that's okay. Better that you bail out than just carry on being a practical atheist. But if you genuinely want to, and Jesus says, it's all in. Joshua says, it's all in. It's everything. It's a commitment of your whole entire life. It's a, it's a, pro, it's a process of surrender and handing things over to him. And I know you talk about these things and you're thinking, well, what about, what about grace, though? You know, aren't we supposed to be a church that talks about grace? And, and this doesn't sound very gracious. This sounds very legalistic. And I just want, what happened to the church that I knew that was all about grace and come as you are and these kind of things? Friends, I would argue this is all about grace. We haven't stopped talking about grace. The problem is that in our minds, we create these two categories. Over here, there's grace, we think, which is like a shot in the arm when you get saved. And then there's obedience, discipleship, holiness, godliness over here. This is all grace. This whole category is grace. Grace isn't something that just saves you and leaves you where you are. That's not why Jesus died. Just to leave you in some state of not, not at all being any different to the rest of the world. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. The justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Just leaves us unchanged. Leaves us in our old ways. Never take off the old set of clothes and put on the new set. Just some sort of legal declaration. Grace is far more than that, friends. Grace is transformative. Paul says grace compels me to be conformed to the character of Christ. If you've truly experienced the grace of God, it starts to move us on. God takes you from exactly where you are, but he'll never be content to leave you there. He will never, ever, ever leave you where you are. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. We're moving on. We're moving on to maturity. We're moving on to the meat of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. It's a lifetime of discipleship, and that is the outworking of grace. That is what Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. He says, cheap grace is just this label I wear. It's a box I tick on the census. It's a commitment I made 15 years ago. It's the Christian family I was raised in. That's cheap grace. Costly grace is the grace that's living and active and transforming my life from the inside out. Grace is me handing over more and more of my life to the power of the Spirit every single day. Grace is me taking those areas of my life that are not yet yielded to the power of God and saying, this is yours too. And this relationship's yours too. And these finances, even though it's incredibly hard, are yours too. And my home is yours. And my working life is yours. That's grace, friends. Don't ever think that we've stopped talking about grace when we start talking about discipleship. What we're talking about is transforming grace. And so at the end of the day, we've got to make a choice. And it's not just a choice here because then we're stuck with the same problem Joshua had. This is easy. Easy today. Make the choice, sing the song, pray the prayer. We've got to choose and then keep choosing. What matters is whether we are prepared to be when we go home today the people we say we are when we sit here this morning. That's a choice. It's not too hard. It's not beyond you. It is your choice and it is your responsibility. It's not coerced upon you, never forced upon you. It's option. But if you choose it, if you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you choose for yourself this day who you are going to serve. And all I can say is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But for you and your house, that's your decision. 
And each of us have to make it. Each of us have to decide where we stand. Wild geese every year, they migrate around the world. They follow spring, they follow summer, they keep on travelling. And here's an interesting thing. Keep that parable of Kierkegaard's in your mind. As wild geese fly over these barnyards where the tame geese are running around inside cooped up fences and secure barnyards, the wild geese make the screeching sound. They honk and screech and flap their wings and something happens as they do that to these tame domesticated geese on the ground. As these tame geese get a glimpse of their wild cousins up there flapping away and screeching away, the tame geese on the ground start flapping their wings. And they start making the screeching noise. And they start running along the ground as if trying to fly. It's like the the vision of their wild cousins up there awakens something in them. It awakens a memory of what they're supposed to be. It awakens some instinct of what they were actually made to do. And I wonder if Joshua's words to Israel thousands of years ago, choose for yourselves this day who you're going to serve. Whether that awakens something in you, a memory maybe of who it is you were meant to be, maybe a memory of who you used to be when you first became a Christian. You had that fire and that passion, but it's long since died. That wild instinct, that hungering for something more than just the mediocrity that you've drifted into and the mundane numbness that your Christian life has become. We were called for more than that. Jesus died for more than that. We have been called to a life of obedience, a life of discipleship and a life where we continue choosing to be who it is that we were made to be. And those of you this morning that are living as practical atheists, you need to choose. Today is the day to choose. Today is the day to say, I am not going to put up with this half-baked, mediocre life where I'm just living on an empty tank. I'm not going to go for that anymore. I'm not going to live in that place. I'm going to choose today to come back into a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to put a stake in the ground today and choose for myself to serve God. I'm not going to leech off my parents' faith anymore. I'm not going to just rest on some commitment I made way back when. I'm going to choose to follow God today. I'm all in. It starts here. And I want to give you an invitation. We're going to sing a song that talks about surrender band you guys can come up and get ready if you like we're going to sing this song and these words are tough to sing and my first plea is that if you can't sing them don't sing them because we can kid ourselves into thinking that anything we can say anything to god as long as it's in a song but if this is not where your heart is then please don't sing it but if today god is stirring your heart up and saying it's been so long since you really walked with me It's been so long since you had that living, dynamic relationship with me. If he's saying to you today, there's something in your life that's holding you back. There's an area in your life that is tripping you up. There's a habit that just keeps on gnawing away at you and it's a ball and chain around your ankles and it needs to go. If there's something there, if there's an area of your life that you know you're just holding on to it and you have not yet released it to God and God's saying today, you've got to let that go. That is what's holding you back from being all that I've called you to be. It's that thing there, and I want it this morning. If that is you, friends, if you know that God is stirring up your heart, then as we sing this next song, I want to invite you to come forward and sit in this front row here. Nobody's going to talk to you today. Nobody's going to pray with you. Nobody's going to ask you ten hard questions about your life. This is your commitment, and it's your commitment before God. And for many of you, it's a recommitment, because I know you've made a decision already. I know you might have been baptized. I know you might have been christened or confirmed 
and you've done the thing and you've gone through the routine, but this is about you today. This is about you choosing for yourselves this day who you are going to serve. And there's some of you that today need to choose. Today need to be brought to a crisis point and make a decision and say, I'm drawing a line in the sand. No more of the old life. No more of the messing around, mucking around, playing games with God. Today, I'm following him with all my heart. It's all grace. It's all because of his mercy, but it's going to require all of me in response. If that is you, then as we sing this next song, I encourage you to come up, just sit in this front row here, and this is symbolic of you making that decision before God, being here, talking to him, praying and saying these words, maybe for the first time, first time you've ever meant them, might have sung them a thousand times, today might be the first time this reflects what's going on in your heart. Let's stand together. If you want to come forward during this song, you can come forward now.